Welcome to the CME CE Podcast, Let's Talk MRSA, 20 Frequently Asked Questions. Please review the complete CME CE information at www.mrsa20faqs.com. This podcast is designed to clarify frequently asked questions in serious MRSA infections that pose a threat to patient safety and add to the healthcare burden. Episodes released weekly are structured into four learning modules. Learners can apply for credit after reviewing each learning module. This is the fourth learning module, Applying Antimicrobial Stewardship Principles. There are five episodes in this learning module. This is the fourth episode. In this episode, Dr. James Lewis from University of Texas Health Sciences Center in San Antonio, Texas, shares his clinical experience. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, for joining us once again. Now, a number of previous episodes of this podcast talked about optimal treatment of MRSA infections. However, I'm sure you'll agree that the best way to manage MRSA infections is to prevent them from happening in the first place. And so what we would like to discuss in this episode is how can we prevent the spread of MRSA in the hospitals? Now, a recent report indicated that the number of MRSA cases in hospitals in the United States is actually decreasing. What do you think could be contributing to this? You know, I think that the paper you're referring to is probably the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association paper that was published within the last 12 months, looking at rates of line infections in U.S. hospitals in particular with MRSA. So I think what you're seeing here is really a, a recognition that line infections in particular are particularly amenable to bundles or to care or care pathways to really try and minimize the rates of infections that are associated with them. And the JAMA paper in particular, looking at decreased infections in lines, central lines in particular, is probably reflecting improved use of maximal sterile barrier precautions when you're inserting these lines. I know that there have been several large state initiatives trying to get rates of, of central line infections down to zero. And in some cases, people, places have actually been able to do this. So I think what you're seeing is, is much more heightened awareness, much more education, and much more vigilance about being very careful when you do things like insert lines to make sure that you're using maximal sterile barrier precautions and really minimizing the risk to the patients going forward. I think this is really a, a, a major success story for infection control, for bundles, for a variety of things that a lot of us have been doing over the past few years, and now we're starting to see the data emerge that these really are making a positive impact on patient outcomes. Okay. So can you, can you briefly talk about some of the clinical and economic consequences of MRSA in the hospital? You know, MRSA in the hospital is absolutely massive. I think, you know, pretty much any nosocomially spread infection is potentially uh, economically massive to an institution because you start extending stays. And when you start extending stays, I think all of the data out there pretty much shows that you are going to get into a situation where the expenditures for that patient are going to go up markedly. And in an era where CMS and various other payers are moving to not providing payment for anything that is associated with a preventable or nosocomial infection, then you know this starts to really have a major impact on hospitals' bottom lines. And so there are major economic impact, and we know for MRSA in the blood that that really is attributed with a, a longer length of stay, a higher rate of mortality, 
bad things start happening when you have MRSA in the blood, unfortunately, and not just from an economic standpoint, but also from a clinical standpoint. The mortality goes up markedly, length of stay goes up markedly. Nobody really wins here. And so from a clinical and an economic standpoint, MRSA in the hospital is a major problem. Now, some institutions are beginning to perform cultures, such as from nasal swabs, of all patients admitted to the hospital, followed by contact precautions or decolonization when MRSA is identified. Are these methods effective in preventing MRSA spread? You know, this is really the million-dollar question, um, because I think if the data were clear, then I think you would basically have every hospital in the country doing it. Um, there remains a lot of debate within the infection control community about what the true utility is of screening cultures on admission. Um, personally, I think that there is some use to this, but the data is far, far from conclusive at this point. And interestingly, what we are starting to see nationally is MRSA rates declining even in hospitals where they're not doing this. And so I think if all the hospitals had, had been doing this and we were seeing MRSA rates declining, we would say, oh, well, it's, it's because of the screening and, and, and we're doing a great job. But that's clearly not the case because not all the institutions that are reporting declining MRSA rates are doing this screening. So I think that the jury is still out here. I think that it makes a lot of sense to many of us, but that the data is not quite where we would like it to be. And again, the workflow and the expense is not insignificant for your microbiology lab and for various other players in the hospital that have to be involved in dealing with these cultures and these screens once they're done. Okay. So what other infection control tactics can be effective in preventing MRSA infections? You know, I think, again, uh, we've been saying hand hygiene for years, and there is nothing new here. I continue to be flabbergasted, uh, amazed, blown away, whatever term you would like to put there, um, at our inability as healthcare providers to use appropriate hand hygiene. It, it's completely mind-blowing to me. And I think that we know that MRSA is a skin bug. We know that MRSA is a hand bug. Um, and appropriate hand hygiene um, in and of itself would be absolutely massive if we could just get people to play ball here. So I think that's important. I think that prompt isolation and infection control procedures in people who are found to have MRSA um, are absolutely critical as well. Um, but again, I think it really boils down to making sure that we as providers um, are doing everything that we're supposed to be doing in 2010, um, and that would go a long way towards pre preventing a lot of these MRSA infections. Okay. So um, you may have mentioned this a little bit in, in, your, in your responses, but who among healthcare professionals should be involved in these infection control efforts? Yes. So basically, if you're a healthcare professional, you should be involved in there. I mean, there's really nobody here that should be left out of this group. Uh, physicians, pharmacists, RT, lab techs, you name it, they need to be involved because a lot of these folks are going into patient rooms. They're going from one patient room to another. Um, you know, this is, this is basically a healthcare system-wide initiative that really the infection, if everybody was doing what they're supposed to be doing from an infection control standpoint, and from a prevention standpoint, a hand hygiene standpoint, um, making sure that all of our pneumonia bundles are being followed, our line insertion bundles are being followed. If we were doing all of that, I think we could make a significant dent in here. And this is about as, as uh, interdisciplinary a topic as you can possibly have. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Dr. Lewis, for giving us some valuable information that can be applied in the clinical setting. Please join us again for additional discussions on meeting the challenges of MRSA infections. Thank you.